Good morning. Uh, We're going to be reading from Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 49. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know what you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and you have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, 
I found among the exiles in Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, his name was Belteshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this, and he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, that you may know the thoughts of your, dream, of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the fields and the birds of heavens, making you ruler over them all, you are the head of gold." Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, 
and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is God's word. Runt, is you there, Runt? Oh, he's coming to eat you, you runny little scrum scorer. Prickling little fish figure, pointy little pods villa. Oh, he's going to winkle you out, you tasteful human being. Of course, you recognise those words from Ronald Dahl's BFG, that's right. It's the stuff of nightmares. And for a child, of course, it plays on all their fears. You can be frightened about all kinds of things, can't you? The dark, uh, spiders, rats, eating locusts, uh, being at some great height. Pognophobia, fear of, yeah, facial hair. Um, <laughs> Bathmophobia, stairs. Here's a good one I just found out recently. Bogeyphobia, what do you think that's fear of? <laughs> Bogeymen, well done, yes it is. <laughs> uh, the irrational fears that we experience in dreams. You know, you can't grab a hand, you, you can't run away, there's a big black dog coming after you. As Christians, we may know that God is in charge, but when our fears loom large, sometimes, often, it doesn't feel as if God is in charge. Sometimes when we're really frightened, it does feel as if monsters are in charge. <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I'm not talking about the BFG, literally uh, walking around Milton Keynes, but uh, as we watch the news, uh, we see another suicide bomb we, and the mayhem that results. We, we see an election that gives power where we fear its use. The wars and rumours of wars. There are migrants on the run trying to escape the horror of their home being bombed. A change of government, a new Prime Minister, a new Mr. President, and we know that despite all the promises and hopes in four years' time, will we have stopped the monstrosities? No, of course not. The news will be just the same. It will still feel as if monsters are in charge. Or closer to home, someone we love very much and everything feels bad, some terribly hard thing in our family, Things go terribly wrong, or there's an illness, or depression, or childlessness, old age, or you lose your job, or you fall out with your best friend, or something bad invades your home, your life, to disrupt your carefully made plans, and it does feel as if monsters are in charge. Now that is just how it felt to Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. Let's turn there. We'll come back to chapter 2 in a minute. And this is another dream in Daniel chapter 7, one that uh, Daniel has. And it's a dream of four monsters who are very much in charge. If you look down to verse 4, you can see what they are like. These four great beasts that come out of the sea. The first is like a lion, verse 4. It's got eagle's wings and two feet like a man. Verse 5, to bear with ribs between its teeth. 
Verse 6, the third monster that's like a leopard. It's got four wings like a bird and four heads, so not terribly like a leopard. Uh, verse 7, what's it like? Well, it's like nothing. It's just a real monster that is all iron teeth. When Roald Dahl thought up the blood bottler and the flesh lump eater and the child chewer, they weren't nearly as frightening as these monsters coming up out of the sea, the primeval foe, coming from the place of anti-godness. There were these four very, very frightening monsters, the four probably to represent the totality of this threat, all the forces of chaos, four empires, four powerful states, but bestial, semi-human, drawing pictures, lessons that make us look ridiculous. But when you're told about them and you imagine them, they're a monster that is all iron teeth, devouring. Such awful things were happening to Daniel and his friends in this story that it did feel like monsters were in charge. Various kings and their kingdoms, rulers whose power felt, well, monstrous, unstoppable, like everybody's worst nightmare. And all of us, as we're thinking a moment ago, all of us sometimes feel the world is like that. The, the Bible says the world will feel more like that for Christians as time goes on, not less. It, it will feel as if God is in charge. Now, we were thinking yesterday about living with two realities, the what-you-see-is-what-you-get world and the other reality that we can't see, that we wouldn't know unless God reveals it. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel saw four monsters, but look what God also reveals to him. Verse 9, he sees thrones set up and somebody sits on it. Last week, Maisie and I went to spend a morning sitting in the public gallery at the Old Bailey, uh, watching a murder trial, stabbing. That's what you do on a half-term break. <laughs> think of that courtroom. Think of the judge with a wig on. And then inflate it several thousand times. That's the picture here. It's the Ancient of Days, we're told in verse 9, who takes his seat in the judge's throne. And end of verse 10 Books are open, books that tell what everyone has gone. You've got these four monsters, the throne, the ancient of days, and open books. And the four monsters now will have to own up, as will everybody else. And God will decide what happens to them and to everybody. God decides, for God is in charge. That's the picture. When we are in Nottingham, my wife, Lizzie, uh, she's a reception teacher. She worked at the school for the last six years we were in Nottingham. When she first got to the school, they were expecting an Ofsted inspection the next term. Six years later, it still hadn't happened. I don't know quite what Ofsted was doing. They'd obviously forgotten this school, kind of slipped out of their mind. But the school staff room lived under the threat of this Ofsted. Every, it's going to come this term. Well, it'll definitely be this half term. We know it's going to come. This tension all the time. The, the power hanging over them. The power to condemn the school. To write it off as failing and put into special measures and all of that. And the picture here is of a world where God will come like that feared school inspector. He'll examine the lesson plans and everybody's work. And everybody have to explain what the books say. And the Ancient of Days, sitting in the throne, will give his verdict. And the verdict in Daniel's dream is verse 11. Those four scary monsters are destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. One day they will stop seeming in charge because they won't be in charge.
And immediately after that, a man is brought in. He's called one like a son of man. And remember, son of man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. So when Jesus used that title, he was thinking of this passage. He was using that title to claim he was the one of these verses. The man who is brought in in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13. The man who is made king, that is Jesus. And everybody has to admit, you are king. And Jesus will never stop being king. God sets up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and all his friends are on the winning side. Imagine you're playing a football match or watching a football match, depending on your level of athleticism. And your side are losing and the fans are letting you know you're losing. And then you pull one back, there's a cross, a flicked header and it's one, one all. And then moments before the final whistle, a penalty is awarded, your team scores, you're on the winning side, and the final whistle goes. That's the message of Daniel, that's how it's going to be for Christians. God is in charge, so Jesus will be king, so Jesus' friends will end up being the winning side. Now all of that is an introduction to Daniel chapter 2 which is the passage we're really looking at this morning. So let's go back there. It's a passage that's got a very similar message. Remember from Daniel chapter 1, that Daniel is one of an elite group of exiles. He's taken to be part of Nebuchadnezzar's reprogramming program, enrolled in his university. Um, All things Babylonian are being imposed on him. Food, religion, culture, education, social life. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king, has a dream. He's having a dream that's unexplained and we're told that his spirit is troubled, verse 1. All the dream experts are brought in in verse 2. Come and explain my dream to me, he says. What's the dream, they say? I'm not going to tell you, he says. Tell me the dream and tell me what it means. If you do, there'll be great honour. If you don't, I'm going to tear you limb from limb. And they say, verse 11, and here is the big verse right at the heart of the verse, nobody can do that except the gods. And they don't dwell with us, so they're no use. Nobody can do it. Right, says the king in his bazzy, faulty voice. That's it, death to the wise men. They can't reveal the mystery. Daniel, of course, is one of the group called the wise men. So his life is endangered too. Verse 17. Daniel went to his house. He made the matter known to his mates. He told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning the mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed. Along with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Simple, isn't it? The mystery is revealed to Daniel. And of course, that is the big theme of the book, that... God reveals things to his people. That's what this chapter is all about. You know, there is more to be seen than the what you see is what you get world. There is the reality that God reveals. You can't know it from just looking. But there is an insight, an understanding, a perspective on things that comes from God's only. And you can't live right unless you've got it. So, uh, second half of verse 19 through to verse 24, that bit in poetry, praise to God because he can and does reveal mysteries. He's telling us what the dream was and what the dream means. 
It was death to the wise men because they couldn't. Now it's praise to the God of heaven because he does. So Daniel has a conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. The king asks, verse 26, can you do it? Daniel replies in 27, no, I can't, but God can. And finally, verse 31, we get to the dream. I don't know whether it struck you as it's being read. What was the dream? Come on, get to the point of the story. We've got to wait 31 verses before we get to it. And I've given the first bit of it this title, the King of Kings and the Lord of Kings. See, what is this dream telling Nebuchadnezzar, and for that matter, revealing to everybody who is listening into this chapter as we are? Who's listening to God as he reveals stuff to this king? What's he telling us? Well, it's a very weird dream. There's a great image, in other words, a statue that is made up of a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of brass, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And it represents a lineup of kingdoms which is generally interpreted to be these kingdoms going through history. There's lots of debate about some of them, but basically this is it. Sorry, that. So here is Nebuchadnezzar being allowed contact with the controller of history, and he's being given a view of history, a view of reality, how God sees the kingdoms of the world, the impressive kingdoms, the monstrous kingdoms, actually, in Daniel 7 language, one following another. God sees them as weaker than the previous one. The fourth one, that's all teeth, okay, it's just a bit of iron. And that fourth one crushes all the others in verse 40. Now before we go on with the dream, just look down to verse 37. Daniel says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory... And in whose hand he's given wherever the devil, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of God. <laughs> Several things are amazing here. One is, not merely that Nebuchadnezzar is impressive, and he thinks he is, but God thinks he's impressive. I think that's quite striking. The king of kings, I thought that was a title for Jesus, not for some tin-pot little ruler called Neb. A tyrant bully, king of kings to whom God has given the power, the might, the glory. Using it one, of Jesus is one thing, but Nebuchadnezzar. But more than that, this is saying that God gave him that kingdom, that power, that might, that glory, that rule is given to him by God. No wonder he ends up saying in verse 47, truly your God is God of God and Lord of kings and a revealer of mystery, because you've been able to reveal the mystery. Now, do you get the point here? Over this king of kings, in verse 37, is the lord of kings, in verse 47. The one who sets up kings and kingdoms and brings them down, just however he pleases, who does it all according to his will. Uh, we just finished watching the uh, uh, Netflix box set of The Crown, that that's a fictional story of the early years of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, at the moment of her crowning, there's this private bit that was the only bit of the coronation wasn't filmed, where the archbishop says to her, or says over her, Bless we beseech thee and sanctify this thy servant, our queen, as thou dost this day set a crown of pure gold upon her head. In other words, it's God who puts the throne, the, the crown on her head. 
not a throne on her head, that would be silly, the crown on her head. As the archbishop is putting it on her, he says it's God who puts it on her. Now you may not like the monarchy, but you've got to admire the theology of that. You see, this, this anti-God pagan, King Nebuchadnezzar, was not outside the rule of God. God was still on the throne, and that is just as true of our 90-year-old queen, and Donald Trump, yep, and so-called Islamic State and their leaders, yep, even with them. All kings, all monstrous kingdoms rule under him. All power in our world is a delegated power from him. However king or kings-ish they become, they are under the authority of the Lord of kings. But then look what comes after this sequence. Look where the sequence ends, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, in other words, the whole image, all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff on the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But that stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Verse 44, the meaning of that, in those days of those kings, God, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all those pieces, those kingdoms, and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. That's my second heading, the wrecking rock and the son of man. Because again, just like in chapter 7 with its throne and one like son of man being brought in, the mighty monstrous kingdoms that make up this statue are not all there is to be said. Here is a picture of a subsequent kingdom, a forever and ever kingdom. One that's not made by human hands, it's not won by victory, it's not inherited by being born in the right family. It is one that is created by God that is going to end all other kingdoms and break them up and then itself stand forever. It is the second half of verse 45, the great God making known to this king of kings, Nebuchadnezzar, what reality lies ahead for him, for every kingdom, for every monster, for all of this world. David Cameron has now joined the list of has-beens, along with Tony Blair, John Major, and all those other prime ministers that we probably ought to recognise, but quite frankly are just relegated to the quiz page at the back of the Christmas edition of the Radio Times. The same will happen sooner or later to Donald Trump. He'll be just the same as Hillary in four or eight years' time. And the opinion makers and the newspaper editors, and the BBC, and IS, the same thing will happen to them as happened to Al-Qaeda. What happened to Al-Qaeda? And the Russian warplanes, it will be for them as it was for the Luftwaffe. Just as it was for Caesar and his horse-drawn chariots. Where are they? 
every kingdom and its might will be smashed to pieces. Has not God given to Jesus the only name that will outlast time? The name that is superior, better, triumphant, over every other name, a name before which every knee will bow. He is not just King Jesus, he is King of Kings and Lord of Kings and Lord of Lords, King over every other monster. How ridiculous that anybody should set themselves against him. This boulder rolling down the hillside that's going to fill the earth. How crazy for anybody to, to treat Jesus with contempt. That Jesus, this Jesus will reign. This son of man, this son of Joseph, this ordinary bloke, this guy who trained as a carpenter, he makes coffins for kingdoms. For the future that we know, that God has made plain to us, that the Bible explains again and again so we can hardly miss it, that future is now an open secret, open for anybody to know. The future is not orange. You're probably too young, most of you, to even understand that, that slogan. There's another kingdom that came and went. You know, the future is a throne on which Jesus is seated. Whatever tomorrow may bring, whatever our horoscope may dangle in front of us. Sorry, just translations of the orange reference going on around. You know, the truth is that all the kingdoms of this world, however monstrous they may be, all peoples and all nations and all languages and all monsters will have to fall flat on their faces before him. For to him, Jesus, our Jesus, has been given dominion everlasting dominion that will never pass away and glory and a kingdom that shall never be destroyed to him be the praise and the glory I'm going to say a word with a question mark you respond very loudly with the same word with an exclamation mark Amen Amen Thirdly, enduring the roar of the monster now what I want to also do before we go to coffee is chapters 3 and 6 <laughs> Uh, which tell us, I'm on a roll, <laughs> which tell two terrific stories, very well-known stories about God's people in desperate straits. Keep your finger in three and six, flick backwards and forwards. Chapter three is about a burning fiery furnace. Chapter four is about a den of lions. But here's my question. Why are we told these stories immediately inside the two chapters that tell us that God reigns and he is establishing a kingdom that will last forever? Now, obviously, both these stories are stories about rescue, aren't they? The three get put, the three of God's people get put in a fiery furnace and they're rescued from it. Daniel gets put in a den of irons and he's rescued from it. Nebuchadnezzar came to witness that. Chapter 3, verse 29. End of that verse, there is no other God who can rescue like this. Chapter 6, verse 26. The king then says... He's the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall not be destroyed. His di dominion shall continue to the end. He delivers and rescues. This is the mighty God who rules, but who also rescues. Of course he can. But I wonder if these two chapters are also about something else. Before we talk about rescue, 
we need to talk about living in a world of monsters. The four monsters from the sea of chapter 7. The sequence of ever more kingdom after kingdom in chapter 2. These stories in chapter 3 and chapter 6 are about living in Babylon. For the might of Babylon and the, the might of the Persian Empire that followed it, those empires set themselves against God and his people. In chapter 3, the state has fire. In chapter 6, the state has teeth. The flames, the teeth, they are set to consume the faithful. So before we get to rescue, these chapters are first about endurance. God's people enduring the roar of the anti-God monster state that's terrifying, dreadful, and exceedingly strong, that is firmly set against God and his people. God's people in Babylon, rather than in Jerusalem, where we long to be. So Daniel chapter 3, first of all, you know the story? It's a chapter full of sarcasm. We've just had the story of this enormous statue that looks very grand and is smashed to pieces. And Nebuchadnezzar immediately says, statue, mm, that's a good idea. And so he builds one, 90 foot tall. That's six double-decker buses stacked on top of one another. Not subtle. It's a, a symbol of worldwide dominion. And he says everybody to, is to gather, at least everybody who's anybody. And they are listed in verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 7. Again and again, they're called together. The band plays, and we get the list of the band four times in verse 5 and 7 and 10 and 15. What instruments there were, what cacophony they made. Because I wonder if the whole of the pomp of this scene is being mocked for its pomposity. Because the whole thing is a setup. The statue is a setup. The word setup gets used 11 times. As if to make the point that it looks impressive. In the what you see is what you get world, it looks fearful. It's got all the weight of Whitehall behind it. All the government muscle you can muster, but it's a farce. Because Daniel chapter 2 has already made it plain what God does with enormous statues that represent empires. State-sponsored images. And only if you can see behind the mask, behind the curtain, remembering what God has just revealed for national posture. If only you can see the, the falsehood and the stupidity of it. If only you can hear heaven's laughter at it. I mean, God is busting a gut with humour at this scene. Wow. So the band plays. The crowd gets its collective backside in the air, sticks its nose in the sand, and enjoys job security. What about you, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When they play the tune, which city's music will you dance to? Will they manage to coerce you? Will you buckle under this immense pressure? You must kneel down before the state. Imagine the conversation that was going on at the water cooler that day. Look, it's fine that you've got a personal faith. That's fine. You can keep that. Nobody's threatening your personal faith. Nobody minds that. But just in the public sphere, you know, there is such a thing as political correctness. 
You, you must submit to that, just, just for the sake of appearances. Your Lord and Master isn't asking too much. Hold on to your private faith, just keep it at home. Verse 16. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we've no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, that you will throw us into the burning fiery furnace, if this be so, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Look again at the beginning of verse 18, those first three words. But if not. We believe our God will deliver us. But if not, even if he doesn't, we're not going to serve your gods. Now, they didn't know how it was going to turn out. And given the extreme heat that is coming from the oven door at that moment, there's little room for doubt about how it is very likely to turn out. How could they take such an immense risk? How could you do it? Because they knew chapter 2. They knew who really rules. They were gripped by the reality that God has revealed. They do not think that what you see is what you get world of kings with big voices and an impressive marching band and a hot oven is all there is to say. The logical response, if you really believe that God rules, is to say, no, I'm siding with him. And amazingly, he does rescue them and they're burned like toast. The oppressors, that is. <laughs> Which is a sneak preview, isn't it, of the final rescue of chapter 2 and chapter 7, when this world's empires are smashed into pieces, and God's king is on the throne, and God's people share his reign. A little sneak preview of that. Just the same in Daniel chapter 6, quickly as we finish. You'll know this story. It's nothing like the children's storybook. Just search online to find videos of what happens when a lion attacks somebody. Actually, don't do that. I've done that. You don't need to do it. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's nothing you want your preschool child to consider, and it's not a gentle bedtime story. There's no suggestion here that the lions have a change of natural instinct. There's no suggestion that when it got to night time, they snuggle down like teddies with Daniel asleep using their flank as a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not, R. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> For all we are, no, no, yeah. <laughs> For all we know, these lions could spend the entire night prowling round Daniel, growling. Okay, they have to keep their mouths shut when they growled. <laughs> Verse 24. They're certainly lion-like here. When the men who maliciously accused Daniel were brought in and cast into the den of lions, they, their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. But, verse 22, God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths when Daniel was in there. Now here again, you've got the same monolithic cult of the state. Or the corporate culture. Or peer pressure. You must do what they say, even if it invades your private life. In this story, the state expects, the state demands, and what the state expects and demand is that the king must be centre stage. 
If you want to ask something of your God, says Darius, you don't anymore go to the priests in the shrine of your pet deity. You must ask the king. The king is now being given the job of being everybody's high priest. If you want to pray, you must pray to the king and he will mediate your request to your gods. He is the one and only way you can have access to your gods. Daniel, as you know, won't play ball. Verse 10, he goes to his house and does what he always does. His quiet time routine is so predictable. Your enemies could set their clock by. The alarm goes off, the person's angry, the cup of tea is in, and he starts to read his Bible. And prays as always. He maintains the same pattern, praying towards Jerusalem. And the inevitable happens. He's thrown to the lions, but by faith, we're told in Hebrews 11, he, Daniel, shut the lions' mouths. In other words, he went to this very uncertain future. He could see the lion's snapping jaws. God could deliver me, but if not, I am still going to do what my God says and not what the king says. He went there because he was certain about his unseen future. He believed Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Some years ago, John Piper wrote a short booklet called Risk is Right. Basically saying it's right to risk all if you're confident that you've got a willing hand. To see the point here, it's not risk in chapter 3 and chapter 6. It's not like throwing dice. Not if you know the God behind the scenes. If you've had a glimpse behind the curtain and you know what the Lord of Kings is like, and you know about the wrecking rock that is rolling down the hillside, and you know about the judgment thrones, and you know about the eternal reign of the Son of Man, and with him all the saints of the Most High, if you know all that, then lions schmions. A little while ago I read the story of a Romanian pastor who was persecuted for his faith, under the Ceausescu regime. This is what he wrote. The greatest fear that they have, that, sorry, let me start again. The greatest threat they have is the power to kill you. Our greatest victory is to die. So whenever my captors told me we're going to kill you, I said I could hardly wait. <laughs> I was telling this story in a similar conference to this, and somebody came out afterwards and said, I know that bloke. He is an absolute idiot for Jesus. I mean, that really is exactly what he does say. We're going to kill you? I can hardly wait. I believe what God has revealed. Death holds no terrors, no fears, no unknowns for us. What's the worst they could do to you? Lions. Schmions. You know the story of Jim Elliot, the missionary who in the 1950s went to this tribe in South America. Very interesting. This was on the BBC website this week, this story again, an interview with his uh, daughter. Really interesting story. Driven by the gospel, driven by the lostness of the lost, he went to a tribe. They landed, they played five young men in the 50s, younger than a lot of you guys here. Landed a plane on a tiny spit of land to reach this unreached people group. Five days later, they all speared to death. He said this, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your life. 
Why are you trying to hold on to it? That's going to end, isn't it? But you don't want to lose reigning with the King of Kings and the Lord of Kings. Until the Lord Jesus returns to planet Earth and all things are renewed, we will go through many pressure points that we can't understand. We will feel the hot breath of the monsters. But we know how the story ends. We know about the Lord of Kings. We know about the Wrecking Rock. So we'll endure. Let's pray together. Father God, these are inspiring stories and in many ways feel a million miles away from our ordinary life. And we think, well, good on the heroes. But we know that they were driven by the same realities that you've just revealed to us again this morning. Please may we believe it. Please may we live our life not just on the basis of what we see around us, but on the truth that you have revealed of what lies ahead, of the truth of the sovereign reigning Lord Jesus, of the rock that will flatten and smash every other kingdom, of the throne on which the Ancient of Days will sit and the monsters will be destroyed, of the kingdom that will never end, that we will share. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.